Welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast, the podcast by sympathetic people for sympathetic people. Today, we're talking about stuff that can't be talked about. So yeah, you wanted me to read this epilogue from Tolstoy's War and Peace. Tolstoy has always been your favourite author, of course. Oh, You've had nothing but praise for your, yeah. you know, esteemed compatriot. Um, anyway, you wanted me to read this because you thought it contained some ideas of interest. So, do you want to give a like a you know an introduction to those ideas? So we can chat yeah, them. I guess. I mean, what I liked about it, I mean, uh, is that it's kind of, you know, in itself is an essay of Tolstoy's opinions on, it's kind of, you know, like summarizes nicely the uh, uh, Tolstoy idea that history isn't driven by some individuals, but it's driven by some forces that are kind of like emergent on, of mm. the, from, like they emerge from the, uh, actions of all individuals kind of all the people that are involved in you know history of earth i mm-hmm. guess and in general he's like he is big on the idea that the more powerful a person is the less free he is so uh because like the power the weight of the power necessitates uh the restriction on his choices mm. and so he's basically like I mean, the war and peace can be separated basically into uh, big chunks. One chunk will be the, the actual novel, mm-hmm. and another is Tolstoy's ranting that people don't understand Napoleon and Napoleonic Wars, that people don't understand <laughs> history in general, yeah. Yeah. and that they have nothing to do with what people think they uh, mm. you know, are about. So basically, he's very opposed to the idea of like heroic view of history, mm. that there are no leaders and they make decisions, mm. and then those decisions are being executed. The so-called, so, um, what is, you know, Whig's version of history, apparently, you know, history through the lives of great men or whatever. So he has a kind but it's still of really prevalent mm. in yeah. just like nowadays perspective. You mm. know, people. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure about the history historians themselves what mm. they think about it. But people tend to think of uh, history in that way. Or, you know, when you read the Wikipedia articles, it will be so-and-so, the author of this law that made this and this possible, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and that's definitely a, an artifact of, of both methods of analysis. Like, it's easier to analyze events causally if we, you know, chunk them up in that way. It's also easier to remember those events if you attach them, you know, for the purpose of the members of the general public who, who think about history but aren't necessarily, you know, pursuing history as a science in the way you say Tolstoy is, um, is discussing it. Even for those people, it's kind of a mnemonic technique to associate events with personalities, you know? So I think both the way we study things, basically the way we understand things, and that obviously includes how we remember them, causes us to look at history that way. Or is, yeah. is one of the reasons. I think, I think that's the way, yeah, we, we understand things in, in general, just not, not just history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the most obvious, you know, things that, you know, from Dostoy's perspective, you know, uh, say Napoleon uh, giving some orders would mm-hmm. be not a cause, but rather a result of these orders being, you know, not so much of a necessary, but they kind of like the situation itself mm-hmm. and the will of people around him necessitates sure. those orders. 
And if they go against the general trend of the, you know, forces, like if they go against the uh, trajectory of the forces, they, those orders won't mean anything. They mm -hmm. won't be just executed or anything yeah, at yeah. all. So he says and there's, there's a long list. Yeah, of... I think it's kind of like akin, you know, he obviously, you know, minds the idea that uh, there are some deep laws of history mm -hmm. that are similar to, you know, physical laws mm -hmm. or, you know, laws of, I don't know, biology and evolution, right? The laws that are not visible if you're looking at the surface level. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to actually study the system and what's underneath the system. Yeah, so to he has see a... that there are, you know, like underwater currents that are the reason why the system is in place. There are patterns. So, I mean, there's so many interesting points that come up in this piece, and I did make a lot of notes. Um, because it, it stimulated a lot of really interesting thoughts. And it's, it's really interesting to consider... I mean, firstly, it's interesting to consider the style of the piece in that he doesn't necessarily erect a, any particular positive thesis um, on quite a number of his points. You know, like he lets different arguments battle with each other in his essay. Um, so it requires, I think, a lot of interpretation of the text to try and extract... Tolstoy's, you know, strongest arguments from it, or the arguments that he would himself perhaps hold, uh, maybe in a dinner party conversation. Um, but this is kind of like a conversation with himself, really, in, in, in I guess, the tradition of a lot of philosophy, that he's, he's arguing the, the different positions out on the page, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, to go back to your first comments, um, what you're describing is, is sort of the, you know, Tolstoy is a bit of a complexity theorist, you know, in today's, you know, scientific terms, in the sense that he's looking at history, as you said, looking at events in history as kind of emergent effects um, and not caused by independent cause. You know, I say that, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But he's what he's attacking is the idea, because he goes on and has a big thing about free will, like the second half of it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. because it ties in here, yeah. right? It's oh, it's inevitable, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's intimately related to what he's talking about. Um, and, yeah, it, it gets quite knotty, or my notes on it get quite knotty uh, in the section on, on free will. But um, he certainly comes up with a, with a lot of interesting points, certainly points that have been explored by others. Like, you know, I said that I feel that he sounds very Kantian, you know, a number of points. Um, obviously... Kant wouldn't have been the first person to come up with those arguments either. But they are arguments that have been explored um, quite a lot concerning free will and, and emergent causation. Um, in the first bit, maybe if we work through it a little bit, like the first bit, he, he, he differentiates... The, he talks about the idea that the deity, the idea of a, um, of a non-local cause, essentially... Um, was previously identified with a god. What he's yeah. saying is basically, like, you know, there were previously people were saying that uh, history is driven by gods. Mm -hmm. That if you go to Greek philosophy, you know, not philosophy, but to Greek historians, like ancient Greek historians, mm -hmm. they would be, you know, saying that uh, events happen because gods will them to be so. Mm -hmm. So uh, they, the deity wants something, the deity acts, mm -hmm. and then things happen. So can't really go against that, and uh, the deity, the will of the god, is essentially the force driving the history. Mm -hmm. But then he's arguing that people, uh, you know, 
progressed and they said, hey, this argument doesn't really explain much. So they removed the deities, but they erected individual humans in mm -hmm. place of deities. Sure, sure. And then they say, hey, you know, France attacked Russia because Napoleon wanted so. Mm -hmm. And in Tolstoy's uh, thinking, and I mean, it's actually quite logical that this yeah. is equally, uh, you know, I don't know, irrational to believe that deity wanted France to attack Russia, and that's why France attacked Russia, or Napoleon wanted to attack mm -hmm. Russia, and that's mm -hmm. why France attacked. So I think what he, you know, he highlights the fact that the concept of a deity as a kind of final cause has been the way we've spoken throughout most of history about these kind of emergent effects. So there's like a really interesting parallel with the way you described him. It's what I was sort of trying to get at before. Um, between the way you described him in kind of complexity type terms that he's looking at emergent effects of, of you know, many, many actors um, acting together, but patterns that are not actually reducible. Like it's a kind of a complexity theory in that sense that they are emergent. They're not reducible to the actions of, of individuals. They're not just the sum. They are kind yeah. of this emergent thing. And he identifies the fact that for, for throughout most of history, that thing is has been God, basically. You know, the idea yeah. of this emergent, higher thing that is kind of supervenient to the rest of reality and explains everything we can't explain about reality um, has been God. And he basically is saying that when you take that out of the picture, you don't have an explanation at all. So he's not just saying that it's similarly irrational. Um, he's saying that when you try to be purely rational about these things, when you try to employ reason only to analyze causes, um, you basically you end up not explaining anything. You end up with a description. See, what I think part of what he's saying and he doesn't really quite articulate this, but I think that there's a really big issue in, I guess, epistemology concerning the difference between descriptions and explanations. It's like laws, for example. Are laws, like the laws of physics, are they descriptions or are they explanations? So I would argue that they are descriptions of patterns which never or almost never seem to be deviated from. But they don't explain why those patterns exist. That's the why these laws question. And that's one of the things that, you know, hardcore theoretical physics is, is really trying to work on. Why are the laws of physics the way they are? The laws of physics are just describing patterns. And I think while he doesn't quite elucidate that, I think that's what he's getting at in some sense. Like that's Yeah, a, but he would argue, even, mm -hmm. even if he would agree with you, he would mm -hmm. argue that, that uh, at least in his times, probably in our times as well, mm. uh, history is not even uh, have it, like isn't even putting down the laws that yeah. describe the patterns. Mm -hmm. He would say that history is too preoccupied, or at least was too preoccupied, with the surface level understanding of it. It's yeah. like we can only see, you know, and study Napoleon or his generals or any mm -hmm. Alexander the First or whoever, mm -hmm. because we have written accounts about them and what they were doing and what they were willing, mm -hmm. and we don't. have any accounts of, you know, soldiers in French or Russian army and what they wanted and what they were doing. And that's why we're not studying them. And sure. they're out of the picture because, mm -hmm. I mean, like in his times, because, you know, noble people are doing history and noble people, especially in, you know, 19th century, they're all about heroes and all about, you know, mm -hmm. like they're not into, you know, filth. They're not into the actuality of the war. For sure. 
the thing and, the thing yeah. about see he wants like talking about laws in this way the thing about the laws of physics which he's drawing parallel with is that they're very very simple right because they're they are yeah. in exceptionless mathematical language you know so they're very very simple and they're also based on a huge number of data points in the sense that they're consistent all over the place and maybe the part of the error um, that he's kind of committing himself maybe in this analysis is that trying to apply the approach of looking for laws of history when yeah. it's not simple and you don't have a, like all this um, repeatability because it's not consistent. Because even though there might be patterns which are seem kind of simple, the actual details will be wildly different in every circumstance. Whereas with physics, the patterns are simple and they are the same in every circumstance, which is like a really, really huge difference between history and physics. So I think what he exposes, and I think this gets at the idea of, of trying to analyse things using pure reason, like using the methods of physics... Um, is that the actual course of history, and I think, you know, he goes in and talks about consciousness in the section on free will and the involvement of consciousness in history and therefore free will and stuff. Um, I think those things are, are, are intimately connected and they're both beyond reason in this sense, right? They're beyond the application of the methods of physics. But how to put it? Well, I'll stop there. I'll let you react to that while I collect my own thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the uh, the thing that I don't quite get, you know, here in, in terms of his position is that his position on free will is slightly murky from, to me at least. Mm. Uh, I don't think he has made his own mind because it seems like he, you know, there is some conflicting opinions. First of all, he's saying that uh, if you approach it rationally, then mm. free will doesn't exist, yeah. which may be, okay, fair enough. Uh, but then he's saying that, but that argument, or argument coming from reason, has nothing to do with the free will because mm -hmm. free will is the way it feels to do, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody, you know, would you know could say that it feels that you know he or she or whatever are free to perform an action, right? And so nobody is forcing you to perform an action. It's kind of a you on your own volition having that action. And so the feeling of the freedom has nothing to do with the ra rationality behind the freedom. Mm -hmm. So this is one thing. But then kind of towards the end, he kind of goes on to say, hey, actually, you know, the deep forces of history will necessitate certain actions from certain individuals, and kind of we have to get on uh, with the uh, whole idea of free will and just be, you know, over it because it seems that it doesn't mm -hmm. exist. You know, the same way that we used to think that Earth is flat and it feels really, really flat, but it's not actually flat. Yeah, well, I think he's a dualist. And I think he's very, he's very interested in and, and motivated by understanding the scientific view of the world. And he's also very interested in understanding the spiritual, theological view of the world at the same time. And I think he's, he's at a point in history, and I guess it's, history, it's kind of always been this way to some extent. But um, I guess in the 19th century, Romantic era there is this ongoing clash. You know, it's like 100 years after Kant and things, and really what a lot of Kant is about is this clash between these two different ways of viewing the world. And 
what things are amenable to reason and what things aren't amenable to reason. And are those things that are amenable to reason therefore less real than the things, you know, like are the, are the things that are not amenable to reason less real? Or are they just not amenable to reason? Are they before reason? Like, do we require some of those things in order to get to reason? And all those sorts of arguments. Like, I think it's a kind of a hot topic. I think it really still is, actually, a very, very hot topic. I think it's probably only... Like, it was really hot at the time of the Enlightenment, and it's only got hotter ever since then. Like, this is the big yeah. argument. Can these two but things be like reconciled? To me, at least, the argument mm. seems just slightly wrong-headed in the way that, mm. uh, like... The question stands usually, are we free to do things or aren't we free to do things? Why can't it be, you know, somewhere in between? Yeah. Why can't we have, you know, yeah. certain forces pulling us towards doing a specific mm. whatever action? And at some point, at, you know, point A, you have a force of, I don't know, 0.2 pulling you somewhere. Mm. And at the other time, you have like 0.8, right? Yeah. So, like, why don't you just, like, it, I mean, it's like blatantly obviously it is different at different times when you're in the army and you are told to march somewhere your freedom is not as big as when you are just on your own in the same freaking field and you're deciding mm. whether to march somewhere or not mm. right so i mean you're still not totally free yeah. but yeah like, i mean i think this is is one of the great um it's clearly one of the great confusions in all of philosophy. Like I was saying, it's one of the great arguments in all of philosophy and it's only got hotter and hotter. I think it's one of the great confusions because I think that if you are not a dualist, this issue doesn't arise. And I think that most people are dualists, including the really anti-dualist people. Um, no. I, I think that most physics are dual, most physicists are dualists in a way because a lot of them believe in either explicitly or treat it as such mathematics as this kind of platonic structure which has an actual reality you know some people are very explicit about that like max tegmark but other people you know most people theoretical physicists and they're kind of the ones who are they're the metaphysicians of today in some sense or they're one major branch i mean there are people who are practicing metaphysics in a purely philosophical sense um but theoretical physicists are doing, you know, mathematics-aided metaphysics. So it's kind of intrinsic, it's an intrinsic assumption of their field almost, that mathematics have this reality that's independent in some way from, like, the reality that we actually move from, um, move through. And, you know, they will, they will obviously say they're not really metaphysical dualists. Maybe they aren't, but the way they understand the world is through a dualist framework, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's very, very difficult to not do that. Um, and I think that's why it's such a huge tussle between these, you know, these yeah, ideas. Yeah, but can you actually but, elaborate? I mean, can yeah, you actually yes. elaborate on that in the way that yeah. how does it come into... I'll, I'll do my best. So I think what it is is a failure to understand... Um, <laughs> I mean, this is me doing my metaphysics, right? But I think if you're a monist, if I think if you're a genuine monist then you understand, first and foremost, that your brain is in the world, right? Um, and yeah. you understand that your consciousness is in some way a product of your brain. So your consciousness is in the world. Like, that may seem really counterintuitive because it really seems like we inhabit some kind of different realm of reality, you know? But your consciousness is in the world. Like, a lot of people claim to believe this, 
like most people in cognitive science and you know most physicists would say they believe this and stuff so they believe the words but i don't think it's really had the effect on their entire philosophical framework that it should have yeah but how do you think like it it should feel as in like Mm. you know if you're not a dualist yeah why this argument isn't even the you know yeah well it's very interesting isn't it because people are imagining that thoughts um and you know there are so many angles into this there's the argument from introspection like that meditators like sam harris Uh who you know there's the argument from physics Laplace's demon types of scenarios like of causal series and causal regression and everything like that you know you're a product of your birth you're a product of your genes you're a product of the big bang you know but what's before the big bang oh shit hang on now we're in a you know like that way of thinking always runs into infinite regress and tolstoy specifically references that so it's a dead end so yeah the way the way i feel like you should understand it you know and i mean of course, I'm wrong, you know, no doubt. But the way I see it, like, I feel like people like Nagarjuna and in different ways, people like Hume and Kant and, you know, whatever, and maybe Buddha himself um, understood this. Basically, you're, I wrote a thing down earlier today, which I will read to you. I wrote a lot of shit. Um, but try this on. React to this, if you will. That, okay. okay. That which you refer to as you is part of the interdependent whole which you refer to as reality. You are a very particularly organized part of reality, and your very particular organization grants you a great deal more influence over future states of reality than, say, a rock. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so... I mean, I don't have a problem with the free will in the first place. No, I know you don't. I know you don't. No, 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 I know you don't. And I know that that is basically how you see things um, in some sense. But it's a very hard idea to articulate. Because whenever we are using words to describe things, we start going into this dualistic way of seeing things. I mean, evolutionary, like, as as we know... Mm. Discussed many times, like evolutionary, it makes perfect sense for you know consciousness and free will to arise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not free will to arise, but consciousness yeah. to arise because consciousness is the vehicle for sure. exercising so free will with more precision than otherwise. Yeah, exactly. There are there are very interesting epiphenomenalist arguments about consciousness, uh, and they shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. So I don't want to make it seem like we are, but we don't need to go there now either. The, the key, so the second part of that little thing that I just read was was about you know functional will yeah you know like i was saying you are more causally influential than a rock right so that Mm -hmm. is an evolutionary thing which you obviously immediately recognize the first part is the is the more important the more subtle move which is that you are within reality you know like everything of you is within this interdependent whole as is everything else that exists so Mm -hmm. like there's no way of separating see you know, I, I, I bitch about reductionism sometimes. It's uh, not because it's not an incredibly powerful and important and useful way of understanding the world. It's because it's bad metaphysics, right? So if, like, I use it, we use it as scientists, 
most of the incredible shit we've discovered through scientific means, someone will obviously disagree with that, but a lot of it has been thanks to reductionism. Like it's methodologically, it's, it's amazing. It's an incredible epistemological tool, but it is not the way reality actually is. Things are all glommed together. And that also doesn't mean that reality is like Brahman, by the way, that it's an undifferentiated whole. No, it's fucking differentiated as shit. It's patterns of organization all over the place within reality. That's why, you know, it's true that you and I are one, and the computer, we're one with that, we're one with everything, but it's also true that you and I and the computer are distinct entities. And as soon as you start saying shit like that, people start to think dualistically. And that's why um, in Advaita Vedanta, like in the very refined monist traditions that have very detailed philosophy to support their vision of monism, they, they do talk about the ultimate reality as undifferentiated. And you can't talk about it. That's basically all you can say. Um, because as soon as you start talking about it, now you're in the pluralistic world of illusion, world of appearances. I don't think that's true either. I think that we are really different things, you know, like, but again, it's patterns, um, patterns in the whole with functional boundaries, clearly. I think the, the bad free will arguments are akin to a lot of the bad, you know, uh, mathematics as metaphysics, like, it's, it's all this arguments where you confuse a description with actual reality, I think there is something deeply ineffable, unspeakable, inarticulable, whatever, um, about reality. So there's a so in that sense, I'm kind of a mystic, you know, because I think that we, as you've said for a long time, but you know, so was Kant, for example. So were you know a lot of quite hardcore, very rigorous philosophers who are you know like because. Like Wittgenstein, the late Wittgenstein, is very mystical because, you know, he tried, he worked so hard to, you know, the Vienna Circle, logical positivism, they were talking about how the only meaningful statements, um, like with any truth value, were ones that were, could be decomposed into pure logic, you know, like that kind mm -hmm. of idea. And so Wittgenstein is trying to, you know, create this um, logical language which maps onto the world in an intrinsic sense, you know, like, because the world is composed of logic. Um, so we map the bits, and anything that can't be mapped that way is meaningless, you know? And at that time, it seems like a really anti-mystical idea when he's doing that work. Um, but really, he's, he's saying that the rest of it we just can't speak about. And that's that's this kind of mystical idea again. It's not exactly saying the rest of it doesn't exist. Um, and then in the later stuff, he completely, you know, attacks his own earlier work and thinks that, you know, the only truth statements um, that can be uttered are in pure logic. That kind of proposition is, is bullshit. And he becomes very mystical. But it's like the seeds of that mysticism are already there in the first place. Anyway, um, the, the free will arguments specifically, they are just an argument of this kind. Like, there are many other such arguments. And this argument also goes into the very weird and beyond reason <clears throat> subject-object thing, you know. Like, there are certain patterns in the universe that are still part of everything else, but they also have subjectivity. And that's like a total, you know, like, we can't accommodate that 
very easily in our, you know, in our way of speaking about things. Um, so that's where the, these bad free will arguments come from.